Ladies and gentlemen, your conference call is about to begin. Here is your moderator, Ms. Marilyn Stern. Thank you. Welcome, everyone. I'm Marilyn Stern, Communications Coordinator for the Middle East Forum. Due to unforeseen circumstances, our scheduled speaker, Mr. Saren Kern, will be unable to join us today. Instead, we'll be briefed by Mr. Greg Roman, the director of the Middle East Forum, who will give us his perspective on our topic, Is Trump Keeping His Mideast Promises? Greg? Apologies to Mr. Kern's inability to be on the call today, something came up last minute, but I do have the opportunity to brief you from the iconic Rayburn House Office Building, where I am sitting right now in the committee chair of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Uh, Daniel Pipes and I will be briefing the full House Foreign Affairs Committee on the Middle East, and I couldn't think of a better opportunity to prepare for that briefing than by briefing the members, uh, donors, supporters, members of the board and the executive committee of the Middle East Forum. I hope to share with you a few thoughts today on the first 100 days of President Trump's uh, position in the Oval Office and also his relations with Middle Eastern allies, foes, and other individual non-state actors in the region, where President Obama's philosophy regarding the Middle East was one of disengagement from the region, trying to influence from afar and create something that I call hegemonic equilibrium sort of a balance of power between the regional uh, horses, if you want to look at Turkey, Iran, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and Israel as being the most powerful five countries in the region, I think that President Trump has done a 180 on that, where he is doubling down on previous American commitments that were made in administrations prior to Obama. He is re-embracing American allies some uh, which have changed in terms of their polity for the worse, some for the better, and that will be the analysis that I will be giving today, reviewing the promises he made during his campaign, specifically an August 15th national security speech that was made outlining his uh, administration's national security policy, specifically as it focuses on the Middle East, and then I hope to be able to get into some questions, uh, which I think is what I would like to be the meat of today's briefing. So the overall theme for what Trump has tried to do for the first 100 days in office is to reassert America's role as the traditional hegemon in the Middle East, thereby re-embracing American allies and casting off America's foes that we had been engaging with, whether it was through the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action in the Iran deal or the agreement with Russia to try to disarm Syria from its chemical weapons supply, which we all now know was not a successful maneuver, uh, casting off Egypt and embracing the President uh, Morsi from the Muslim Brotherhood prior to his fall, and treating Israel as a second-class ally where before the administration, uh, before Obama came to power, they were treated as America's equal in the region. The first thing that Trump has done to realign our hegemonic status in the region is by prov the provision of arms to American allies uh, as it relates to conflicts that they are currently engaged in to ensure that they have a qualitative military edge over their opponents in the region. You can see the approval and request for approval for Saudi-guided munitions to help them gain an edge against the Iranian-backed Houthis in Yemen. You can see the provision of assistance with Israel's missile defense capabilities, an uh, item that came up for negotiation 
under the Obama-signed uh, mutual assistance package that was agreed to for the next 10 years, somewhere around 3 to $4 billion a year, depending on the time. And Trump has signaled that he is willing to increase that aid Greg, I believe we lost you. Is he still on? I'm still here. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. Yes, go ahead. Continue. Okay. Where did I? Where did you stop hearing me? Uh, about just a second ago. So just pick up the beginning of your sentence. Sure. So uh, Trump has doubled down on the commitment to have Israel to allow to have more flexibility in the uh, way in which it spends its aid package, whether it be in Israel or in the United States. And the last thing that Trump has done is he has tried to encourage America's Middle East allies to buy American when it comes to their armament and weapons purchases. We saw during the Obama years that uh, Sisi and Mubarak, uh, prior to his, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, prior to him being deposed, started shopping in France for fighter jets and in Russia for warships and submarines. Uh, we found that now Trump is trying to get these uh, countries to buy American. The second thing that Trump has done to reassert America's role in the region is to provide accelerated support for the uh, navies of our Middle Eastern allies and also for their air forces, where we saw uh, Obama delimit his support for being the conflict against Yemen to intelligence provision and to the allowing of refueling of, uh, of Arab Air Force aircraft. We now see that U.S. intelligence assets are not just on the ground in Yemen hunting al-Qaeda, but it has been declared a central command and American military forces have more leeway in the way in which they strike targets, whether they be Houthi radar installations that are targeting American ships or whether it be al-Qaeda that's active in that area or other countries throughout the region. The other thing that they've done on the logistics front is they have doubled down on their provision of armaments to Kurdish defense forces in northeast Syria, to the direct armament of the Kurds in northern Iraq, where in the Obama administration it was required to supply the Kurdish forces through the central government in Iraq. And I think what he's doing right now, Trump, is he's empowering those who are willing to deal with the United States. The third thing that Trump has done is he has increased the U.S. force deployment in the Middle East. He has deployed troops to Djibouti. He has deployed an increased U.S. presence to the Sinai Peninsula in the battle against Ansar Beit al-Maqdis, or ISIS in the Sinai. He has deployed a full Marine regiment in Syria. Uh, right now, we're around 1,500 troops. It also signaled an increase in the amount of troops being deployed also, we're increasing. He's not just providing arms. Can you hear me? Uh, we lost a little bit of that last, where he's um, increasing the U.S. deployment. He said ISIS in Djibouti, and then it just broke up a bit. If you could reiterate that. Can you hear me, Greg? Uh, Marilyn, I can hear you just fine. All right, continue. We hear you clear okay. now. My, my apologies. The... Uh, House Foreign Affairs Committee, I guess, doesn't have good reception. That's maybe why they're not hearing the American people sometimes. But uh-huh. That's okay. Anyway, ha, ha, ha. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and they, they have increased uh, U.S. troop deployments in Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria. Uh, the fourth thing that Trump has done with our Middle Eastern allies is he has engaged in diplomacy in areas where Obama had casted off Middle East leaders 
and had essentially treated them as persona non grata. We saw this with the arrival of Mohammed bin Salman, the new defense minister of Saudi Arabia, to the White House, where he called Trump the best friend that Muslims can have. We saw the visit of the UAE's defense minister and also of the Egyptian president, al-Sisi. The most important visit was probably that of Prime Minister Netanyahu, where Trump cast off decades of American policy on peacemaking and said, essentially, it's up to the Israelis and Palestinians to figure out how they are going to make peace. The America will play a role in that negotiation, but it will be essentially be up to the two parties to decide for themselves. And the, the one downside to his increased engagement with America's Middle East allies is his congratulating of President Erdogan on the referendum that essentially installed him for dictator for life in Ankara, in Turkey. That's something that I have a problem with, and I think that uh, we'll see that unfold. Where Iran might be the war of today, Turkey will be the war of tomorrow. And lastly, he has been showing a willingness to use force. He's increased drone strikes in Iraq and in Yemen. He has uh, pushed back against Turkey's latest strikes against the Kurds. He has allowed for increased American airstrikes and to give more power to his generals in the field instead of micromanaging conflict out of the National Security Council. And a point where I was particularly proud of was his use of force after the chemical weapons strike by uh, the, uh, the uh, Syrian regime in, um, a few weeks ago, and he retaliated by destroying 20% of Syria's air force. Now, I understand that that may be a controversial statement where I'm saying I supported that, but I have my reasons, and there is a difference of opinion on that within our wrong, being able to debate the issues but agree on the larger principles and strategies of how we can reassert America's position in the region and make us safer at home. So that's my analysis on Trump, and I would like to open up the floor to questions now. Bonnie, can you please uh, instruct our callers? Yes, thank you. The question and answer period will now begin, and we invite your participation. Please note that when there are no questions in the queue, the moderator will ask a question. To join the question and answer session queue, press star 1 on your telephone keypad. If you wish to identify yourself when your line has been unmuted, please do so. Please remember, if you have your phone on mute, take it off mute when you are selected to ask your question. Again, to join the question and answer session queue, press star 1 on your telephone keypad. And we do have a caller, so caller, um, if you wish to identify yourself, please do so when your line is unmuted. This is Larry Gould. My question is, for many decades, the State Department has had primarily Arabists in the Middle East section. Does uh, Secretary of State Tillerson intend to change that? And is uh, civil service provisions an obstacle to him in that respect? So the way in which the State Department's uh, civil uh, servants are put in position is different from the rest of the government. There's actually a... Greg, we lost you. Say it again. Okay, can, can you hear me now? Yes, yes, go ahead. Okay, great. I was saying that there's a difference between the civil service, which provides the bureaucrats that help run Washington, D.C. for most of our federal departments, and the State Department's Foreign Service Corps. 
Now, one of the main problems that Tillerson has is a lack of political appointees that have not been put forward or approved, uh, put forward by the Trump administration or approved by the Senate. So with, with a skeleton staff, he is largely at the um, whim of uh, America's bureaucrats and the State Department. So we saw what I would call the old Potomac two-step that took place on uh, about a week ago with the recertification of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action to Congress. Every quarter, the State Department has to certify that the Iran deal is being upheld by all sides, whether it be the American side or by the, by the Iranian side. So on one day, he sends a report to Congress, which was, I think, written by State Department uh, uh, careerists, and says that the Iran deal is, is being upheld. Today, he puts Iran on in terms of rhetoric versus what he's submitting to Congress is different, but I think that that's the difference between having a skeleton staff and being a secretary of one versus having your own people in the office. And I think we're still in the um, sort of the, uh, the growing pains of this administration, but if they do not appoint presidential personnel to key vital national security positions, you will see a relapse of these occurrences happening time after time, and I think that's something very much to be concerned about. Who's responsible for this lack of appointments? I think it comes from the Office of uh, Presidential Personnel, where there are two main uh, factors inhibiting these appointments. The traditional Republican national security uh, establishment that comes and goes with the Republican administration was somewhat fractured by the election of Donald Trump. Um, there was those who were identified as, as um, uh, what was called never Trumpers, and I think that after an election is over, you have to drop you have to drop the uh, the political barrier to uh, serving in an administration. And, and some never Trumpers said, you know what, Donald Trump is president now. We're going to put politics aside and, and for the better of the country, serve in the positions that we had been in during the Bush years or during the Reagan years. But Trump came back and said, you know what? Anyone who signed any document or made any kind of enunciation that I'm a never-Trumper will not serve in this administration. And unfortunately, the appointment or the proposed appointment of Elliot Abrams as the Deputy Secretary of State, he is a, a, a overqualified for that position. I would even say he'd be good as Secretary of State, was derailed by White House political forces because he made one statement against Trump way early in the campaign. So I think it's a problem sometimes to put politics ahead of the best appointments that can be made for our national security apparatus, specifically at the state and defense departments. I hope the president learns from his mistakes. Uh, he's showing that. Like I said, he's learning on the job, but his initial moves, as they have related to large strategic issues outside of Turkey, have been uh, welcome. Uh, I wouldn't say so much for the peace process, but he'll learn. You know, the uh, fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice. You know. Thank you for your answer. Thank you, Larry. Okay, we'll go to our next caller. If you wish to identify yourself, please do so when you hear your line has been unmuted. Thank you, uh, David Kudish from Aspen. I am terribly bothered by what I read about Big Master and his crew, some guy Gorka, who claim that Islam is a religion of peace. Uh, I would, by the way, just a very short comment, Dennis Prager, uh, Prager U, online, 
has a video they released today from a moderate, who is a moderate um, member of the Islamic faith. Okay, I, I don't understand. After the coal and all of those bombings, uh, Lebanon and uh, uh, Kobar Towers, why we're still trying to debate uh, uh, whether the religion is peaceful when the ideology that gets all the oil money that's knocking out the uh, Sufis who are peaceful and they're being funded by the Wahhabists and by the Shias. Uh, it's nuts to me. This is, to me, a dead end. Your comments. Right now, there is, I add, three different polarities of national security decision-making in the White House. The first I would identify as the... Um, uh, David, if you could just mute your line so I don't have the static back, if that's okay. I'm losing you. Um, are yeah, you no, moving? No. Can you go closer to the window? Is there any window uh, in that building? <laughs> Marilyn, can we... Uh... Yeah, David, could you hit mute and see if that clears it up? Um, I just uh, put him back. Um, okay. So he'll be able to listen, but he won't be able okay. to speak. And David, if, guys, you wanna, if David wants guys, to can make hear me a comment... Okay yeah, go ahead. Okay, so I was saying that there's a triad of national security decision-making that exists within the White House. We lost you. Go ahead, Greg, speak again. Nope, there's static. Once again? Uh, yeah. oh, that's a little bit better. Uh, okay, I'm by the window. You guys can hear me now? Yes, stay by the window. Go ahead. Okay, wonderful. <laughs> so the air conditioning is here, too. It's a balming 80 ah. degrees in Washington. Great, um, you're in the right spot. Okay, yeah, so you were talking we about the triad. So, there's a triad of national security decision makers in the White House. The first is led by the National Security Advisor, H.R. McMaster. I think I would include Mattis and um, Tillerson as part of that camp. Uh, Tillerson comes from the diplomatic angle, coming from a background as the head of Exxon and dealing with foreign leaders. Mattis comes from his traditional background as head of the Central Command. And Mattis comes from the sort of real politic of war fighting, where he sort of bucked the trend by actually criticizing the army after he was in a position of, uh, of writing a book on Vietnam in the 90s. And they represent, I think, the traditional Washington establishment as it relates to Middle East peacemaking and Middle East war making. Now, they regard the need to divide America's allies, not between Islamists and, and, and moderate Muslims, but those who are in power that are good for America in their opinion, for instance, getting closer to Erdogan, uh, versus those who are posing a threat to America, whether that be the Taliban in Afghanistan or the Iranian regime. The second group that you have is called the Strategic Initiatives Group. It's a new body that was created in the White House under the auspices of Sebastian Gorka, uh, a counterterrorism advisor to the president. And this is sort of where the Bannon camp uh, lays rest. You have those who have not served in a White House decision-making uh, portfolio before. They lack government experience but they do have their own analysis of the way in which Islam should be viewed within the world, and they take a more hard-line approach towards Islamists uh, uh, writ large. And then the third camp, which I think is actually the most influential, is the Trump family itself. If we saw the uh, portfolio that Jared Kushner would have printed out on a business card, he'd have to have it by an 8.5, 11 piece of paper, rather than just the traditional uh, size that he's been given. He has to task... The, uh, uh, the reduction of the size of government, Middle East peacemaking, our scenario in Iraq and Afghanistan, Kushner's portfolio 
is disproportionately larger versus all of Trump's advisors because I think Trump trusts him the most in terms of being able to make these decisions. So what usually happens in the way in which the White House treats radical uh, Islam or Islamism or differentiating between the moderates and the more hardcore uh, Salafis and Diobandi and, uh, you know, whether it's, it's, it's a, a Sunni radical like Al-Qaeda or it's a Shia radical like Hezbollah or Iran, I think that uh, at the end of the day, they're trying to go for the middle ground. So I wouldn't be too afraid of McMaster. I wouldn't be too afraid of Bannon. I would be more afraid of Kushner not having experience to make the right decisions on how this administration treats um, Islam writ large and Islamism. And I think that after the round of meetings that we had in Washington today and yesterday and what we're hearing from our contacts on the Hill and also in the White House, that they're gradually finding that responsible path, but it's going to take them a little bit longer than you may like. So I'd say give them a chance, but when they make mistakes, we're going to call them out on it. And I I wouldn't worry about a disproportionate influence from McMaster for Mattis Tillerson Kushner or Gorka, because at the end of the day, I think, I hope, I hope for them that they'll be able to find the right opinion between those different polarities of decision-making on national security issues in the White House. Okay, thank you. So, Mr. Kudish, uh, we had to take you out of the queue if you would like to uh, follow up on that. If you could hit star one on your phone, and then we'd be happy to connect you. Okay. Well, it doesn't appear he has a follow-up at this time, so Marilyn, I'll turn it back to you. Okay. Uh, there's no one in the queue now, so uh, I'll ask a question about your thoughts on the upcoming Trump-Abbas meeting, um, how you think that is going to unfold, and the three issues that have been stressed by the CVIC, the uh, Congressional Israel Victory Caucus, about um, the expectations from America and U.S. Uh, and Israel on uh, Abbas not living up to his side of the bargain. Uh, how do you think this will unfold? Uh, where the Netanyahu meeting in February was about rekindling the U.S.-Israel relationship and Trump making a promise to the prime minister that he will be Israel's strongest advocate in the international community. And, and we can see this through certain items that he's already done. The appointment of Nikki Haley and her subsequent statements at the U.N. Security Council the appointment of David Friedman as the ambassador, some of the outreach that has been going on in the defense relationship between Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, and Lieberman, Israel's Minister of Defense. The the meeting with Abbas will be more on the nature of an ultimatum. He will walk into the White House. Trump will hopefully, this is what I would like to see happen, Trump will say to him, you've been having a get-out-of-jail-free card for the past eight years with the Obama administration. Here's what I'm going to give to you, an ultimatum. One, you accept Israel as a Jewish state. Two, you recognize that it's not going anywhere and you give up on your idea of a phony right of return. And three, you start playing ball, whether it be through negotiations, this is what Trump will say to Abbas, I hope, whether it be through negotiations or start making statements in the international community that you're actually willing to play ball. And if you don't, the following things will happen. Number one, we'll move the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. Number two, we will no longer ignore your movements in international agencies and bodies against Israel, and we will punish you for that. And number three, 
we will allow for the passage of legislation like the Taylor Force Act, which punishes the Palestinian Authority for providing pensions to the families of Palestinian terrorists, and more than that, allow for the passage of the Palestinian Accountability Act, a piece of legislation from Ileana Rose-Leitonen, the chairwoman of the subcommittee on the Middle East in the House Foreign Affairs Committee, where we go so far as to say to Abbas that you either come back and start recognizing that you have to be a partner in this process, and if you don't, there will be a price to pay for the Palestinian Authority, for Hamas, and even for the Palestinian people. And this is uh, largely along the lines, kind of going halfway to the Israel victory proposition itself. This morning we gathered in the Rayburn office building next to the U.S. Capitol with Congressman Ron DeSantis and Bill Johnson. Uh, Daniel Pipes, our organization's president, also spoke along with Gary Bauer, the director of the Kufi Action Fund, Christians United for Israel's 501c4 outreach arm here on the Hill. And the message that I heard and that I had the privilege to listen to was that there has to come a time now where 100 years of Palestinian rejectionism against the idea of there being a permanent Jewish presence in the ancestral homeland of the Jewish people is over. The more rejectionist that the Palestinians are, the more punitive measures that the U.S. government should encourage Israel to take, to finally take the steps needed for the Palestinians to lose their conflict over the last century against the Jewish people. And only when the Palestinians are defeated, that they no longer have the will to fight, will they be able to build their own polity, their own economy, their own culture, and their own way of forming some form of autonomy that accepts the idea of living side by side a Jewish state, rather than their current modus operandi, which is doing everything they can to prevent peace from happening. So that's what I would hope that the president would do. He would offer an ultimatum, and if Abbas didn't live up to it, he would start enacting the ideas that are present in the Israel victory proposition. Thank you. Hopefully from your mouth to Trump's ears. <laughs> All right, continue, Bonnie. Okay, we'll go to our next caller. Please uh, identify yourself if you wish. When you hear your line is unmuted. Yes, uh, this is uh, Jerry Stern calling. Uh, I have a. I was very disturbed about an article that I read in pro-Jewish media outlet yesterday that um, Secretary Mattis um, is, uh, if anything, ambivalent regarding Israel, but at, at worst, um, very critical of, of things that Israel has done. Uh, in fact, he sounds like he could have been uh, Obama's uh, Secretary of Defense. Um, and uh, he's blaming Israel for and the settlements for standing in the way of peace and said that Israel must make, must make um, uh, painful concessions in order to, um, in order to bring peace, uh, peace around and basically has taken a hands-off attitude towards Palestinian violations of uh, peace agreements. So um, it, the article blamed uh, Mattis' position on the fact that he was so involved with CENTCOM for so many years. And, of course, CENTCOM, uh, which is supposed to represent Middle East countries, does not include Israel. So do you think there is any possibility that Trump would address the fact that Israel is not part of CENTCOM and perhaps um, if Israel were to be included among the Middle East nations represented in CENTCOM, that Secretary Mattis or others who would be in his, uh, his department would take a, a more enlightened attitude, a more 
sympathetic attitude towards Israel's predicament. I appreciate the detailed question, and I apologize I'm going to give a short answer. But I think that General Mattis' appointment and his previous opinions is the central. Oh, we lost you. Say it again, Greg. So I apologize for uh, listening to your very well-thought-out question with a short answer. But to the short of it, no, I, I don't think that General Mattis' previous statements as head of central command will disproportionately influence this White House's view on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And I think even more so, after Mattis has had the opportunity to go as a civilian to Tel Aviv, to meet with the prime minister, to meet with the defense minister, and to also see the view of the individuals who are advising Trump, uh, for instance, the, uh, the deputy national security advisor, Dina Powell, who is a very well-accomplished and extremely qualified uh, uh, national security professional, that Mattis will understand that that is not the Trump administration's policy, and I think that it would not serve him well to offer that kind of advice to the president. This is similar to the uh, argument that David Petraeus made when he was in the region, saying that the reason why there is conflict in the Middle East is because of Israeli settlements. It, it just doesn't make sense. Israel will never be part of CENTCOM. They'll always be included in the European area of operations. And I think that once you get to that level of decision-making, you put that opinion on the side that you had heard from Arab leaders, and you start realizing what it's going to make actual effective Middle East peacemaking and, and showing America as being a strong power in that region. And the first and foremost step in doing that is aligning yourself with Israel and putting its concerns first before that of America's enemies, contrary to the way that the Obama administration did Middle East policy making. Um, with that answer, I uh, I'm unfortunately have to go now. We have a meeting that's taking place here at 4.30 uh, in the House. But thank you all very much for uh, joining me on this call today. I apologize again for the lack of current for being able to be on that. And um, uh, you can always email me at roman at meforum.org. Uh, Marilyn, thank you. Yes, thank you, Greg. And thank you for uh, Middle East Forum's robust activism on these issues. And this concludes our conference call.